verse by verse. There's Bibles at the doors. If you need a Bible, we'd love to be able to give one to you. And if you're visiting RMC tonight, we'd like to welcome you. We do have information packets uh, at the info center, and also the ushers have those. So, you guys hanging in there? Here we are, the middle of January. I'm going to chase a rabbit. Will you guys allow me to do that for just a second? So, I was watching 60 Minutes last night, like streaming it on the computer, and they have these people that have these memories where they can remember like what happened on Tuesday, 1993, like the way we would remember last week or yesterday, they can remember 20 years back. And it was really fascinating, but they ended up this little segment on, you know, try to remember what you did yesterday, try to remember what you did last Wednesday night. So if you can think back one week ago, what did you do one week ago? You're right here. That was good. Good. What'd you have for breakfast one week ago? All right. Did you go to the gym a week ago last week? No. There you go. That was easy. And so this got me thinking, what do I remember about January of last year? And I got to tell you, I don't hardly remember anything of January of last year. It's just amazing. I don't have that kind of memory that they described on the, the Time magazine. So I'm going to try to do a little bit better to remember some significant events this January. That's my uh, New Year's resolution. We'll see how long it lasts. Those are just random thoughts inside of my head. So please forgive me. And let's pray as we get into John 17. Father, we thank you for your love for us, and I'm excited to go through this chapter, and Jesus, we see your glory, we see the love that you have for the Father, the love that you have for us, and we do pray that you would instruct us, that we would gain a greater knowledge of you as we go through this chapter. Please send your spirit to lead us and guide us in truth. Please set me aside and communicating your word that I wouldn't get in your way. We do know that there's a real enemy. So would you bind Satan? Would you protect us from the evil one? May our hearts be that good soil that bears fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember being in high school and my dad coming to get me out of class, which is very rare that a parent would come and get you out of class. And he said, Eric, my brother's Matt, your your great aunt Bertha is really sick. She's in the hospital. She may pass away. We need to go and, and visit her. And my great aunt Bertha, she didn't have any of her kids of her own. So she really treated us like kids. And every time we went to her house, she'd have ice cream. And she lived about 15 minutes from us. And I'll never forget visiting her in the hospital because I saw a side of her that I didn't know prior. And it was her love for the Lord. I knew she always had a, a love for the Lord, but we were trying to encourage her and reading her some Psalms. And she had the Psalms memorized. Like we would pick a Psalm and then she would just start to quote it. And we prayed with her and we got to hear her pray and she had this amazing love for Jesus that came out in her prayers. And what we find tonight in John 17 is being impacted by the prayer of Jesus. Jesus is praying to the Father. It moves our hearts. It shows us an aspect of Jesus Christ tonight that's really thrilling and it's also very moving. If you remember, as we've been studying through John, where we're at is they've just celebrated the Last Supper. Jesus said, let us rise from here. He's headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's right between the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus stops and he prays, 
John the disciple hears the prayer of Jesus, he records it for us. This is the longest prayer that we have from Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, we see the priority of prayer in Christ's life, where he was taking time to be alone with the Father. If you're taking notes, this chapter divides itself in three easy ways. In the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself, and particularly, he's praying for the glory of the Father. He prays for himself, and we'll talk about that more. And then from verse 6, going down to verse 19, he prays for the current disciples, the 11 disciples, not the 12 disciples, because Judas has already betrayed Jesus Christ. And then he ends the chapter from verse 20 to verse 26 in praying for future disciples, which would include us. So verse 1 of chapter 17 Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said. Jesus is praying, and he lifts his eyes up to heaven. We oftentimes think of prayer of folding your hands, bowing your head, closing your eyes. I'm pretty sure that a preschool Sunday school teacher came up with that protocol for prayer, right? If you're teaching a bunch of four-year-olds in the children's ministry and they're hitting each other and smacking themselves, you say, all right, let's fold our hands, let's close our eyes, we're going to talk to the Lord. But not necessarily that's not the prescription of prayer. Yes, there's several people that bowed through, throughout scripture, but Jesus so, shows us something. It's more of the condition of the heart than it is the outward posture. So you may be on your knees, you may fold your hands, you may lift your hands, you may lift your, your eyes to the heavens. And here Jesus, he lifts his eyes to the heavens. If you've never prayed this way, it may encourage you in prayer. Lift your eyes to, to Pike's Peak and look at God's creation and begin to talk to the Father. By looking at God's creation, it reminds us of how powerful our creator is. He lifts his eyes up to the heavens and said, Father, The hour has come. This is significant because throughout John, several times, Jesus says, the hour has not come. My time has not come. But now he says, it's here. The hour has come. Specifically, he's referring to the cross. The moment of crucible where he's going to be crucified for our sins. Imagine what this was like for Jesus We know in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's filled with such agony in his prayer as he's praying all night, knowing in moments he's going to be arrested that he's sweat blood. His heart is completely broken. My hour has come. Maybe there's something in your life where you know this is just a few days ahead or this is a few hours ahead and you start to think about the anxiety of that moment. How much more so for Christ when he would be crucified? The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. This is beautiful. Jesus says, glorify your son so that the father can be glorified. Jesus is praying that he would be glorified, but there's no hint of selfishness. It's for the glory of the father. How specifically would the father glorify the son through this hour of crucifixion? This is where we see the glory of the Father, the glory of the Son. It's where Jesus is glorified as he hung upon the cross for our sins. Think about what the cross tells us about God for a few moments. It tells us about the holiness of God, doesn't it? That God would pour out his wrath and his judgment for our sin upon his Son. It tells us about God's justice. God's not a God that 
just flippantly forgives sin or says, boys will be boys, girls will be girls, no big deal, we'll just sweep it under the rug. We see his holiness, we see his justice, but more than anything else, we see the love of God demonstrated. How much the son loves the father that he would lay his life down upon the cross. How much the father loves us that he would give his son to die for our sins. This is the place where God's glory shines the brightest. God's glory shines in creation. His glory shines throughout the Old Testament, through the rest of the New Testament. We don't want to minimize any of those things, but the clearest, the most intense form of God's glory is seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is praying for here. He's saying, glorify your son at the cross. Because when Jesus is glorified at the cross, then the father is glorified. We see the father clearly. Verse two, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Jesus has this position of authority. He's over all flesh. He has the power to give eternal life. Isn't that encouraging? Eternal life's not something that we earn or deserve, that we can somehow get a paycheck or merit. Only Jesus Christ can grant it. He has the power to do it, to give eternal life to as many as the Father has drawn to Jesus. Think about the Father's role in your salvation. One of the things that I just love to do is to ask people their story. And what I mean by that is what's God's story in your life? How did you come to know Christ as your Savior? And it's one common theme where God's working in circumstances in our lives to bring him unto himself. So the Father's hand in our salvation and Jesus granting us eternal life. Verse 3, and this is eternal life. That, you, that they may know you, the one true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The definition of eternal life that Jesus Christ gives. What is it? It's that they'll know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This word know, it's interesting. In the Greek, it's gnosko. It's personal, it's intimate knowledge. It's more than just the academic knowledge of Jesus Christ but it's the kind of knowledge that you have of your spouse, that we would have this kind of knowledge of Jesus Christ. We can learn about FDR, Roosevelt, but we're never gonna know him in a personal way. We're not gonna have a relationship. And with Jesus Christ, we're encouraged to know him in this way. And in knowing him, that's eternal life. Gang, maybe your understanding of heaven is boredom. Eternity, forever, chubby angels with harps, no thanks, right? That's not heaven at all. Heaven is gonna be fabulous, glorious, wonderful. Most of all, we're gonna get to know Jesus better throughout all of eternity. Jesus is so grand, he's so great, he's so deep that for all of eternity, there's gonna be more to get to know about Jesus. So maybe we've been there for a thousand years and we go, wow, I know so much more about Jesus Then we get to the 2,000 year point. Oh, I know so much more about Christ. There's always more to learn and to know about Christ. That's eternal life is to know him. Here's what's encouraging. You may not know this. Eternal life begins now. We can begin to know Christ in this way now. Get a taste for heaven by having a hunger for a personal relationship with Jesus in salvation, but also in continuing to walk with him. So we want to make worship our obsession. 
the chief goal of our lives to say, I want to worship Jesus Christ. I want to study him. I want to read about him. I want to sing to him, behold him in creation, behold him in the word, behold him every way that I can possible because this is life. This is eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ. Haven't you found everything else just leaves you a little bit empty? Solomon's life is sure testimony to that. In the Old Testament, David's son, the richest man at the time, very wise, palaces, the list just goes on and on. Between his wives and his concubines, he had a thousand. I'm sure he didn't even know their names, right? From a worldly perspective, an ungodly perspective, he had it all. But he said it was vanity, it was emptiness because he was trying to find fulfillment outside of his relationship with Christ. And that's the same for us. We can take Solomon's word for it, his experience, or we can learn it the hard way. And tonight, the light bulb can go on. This is life. This is what I'm looking for is Jesus and pressing him and knowing him and worshiping him. Hawthorne writes this story, short story. It's called The Man with the Stone Face. Maybe you've heard of it. There was this village, a legend in this village is they had this statue of this man with a stone face. They believed that at some point, some man would come into their village that looked just like the statue and he would help the community. He would solve problems in the community. So they're always looking for a man that looked like the statue. A young boy was grown up in this village and he was fascinated by the face in the stone. And he would look at it and he would study it and he would spend hours looking upon it. Do this throughout his childhood, into his adult years. And then he came back as an old man and a little boy looked and said, look, the man with the stone face. He spent so much time thinking about the man with the stone face, beholding the stone face that eventually he became like what he was beholding. Obviously, that's a work of fiction, but it teaches us a lesson, doesn't it? You're going to become like what you behold. And if we worship Christ, if we make him our chief obsession, I'm going to be a worshiper of Jesus Christ. We're going to find ourselves becoming like Christ. We're going to be enjoying this eternal life. Maybe you've heard me say this before, but I think this is really important, is God wants worshipers, not just workers. God wants worshipers, not just workers. It's in worship of the Lord and sitting at his feet, spending time with him, that the work, the service flows out of that. Eternal life is knowing him. Verse four, and I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you have given me to do. This is mind-blowing. Jesus says, I've glorified you on the earth and I've finished the work that you've given me to do, but he hasn't died on the cross yet. This is the most difficult moment is still yet to come. It's only hours away, but notice from Jesus' perspective, he's determined to finish what the Father had given to him. There's no question in Jesus' mind whether he's gonna go to the cross or not. This is applicable. This is an important lesson for us tonight is decide to walk in obedience before you get to the moment of crucible. Decide I'm gonna follow the Lord before you get to the moment of the cross. Because a lot of times, once we get into the suffering, it's too late. We say, I don't know if this is worth it. I don't know if obedience really is worth it, if it's gonna cost me this much. But if like Jesus, we determine beforehand and we say, I'm submitting to the work that God has for me. I know it's gonna get tough. I know it's gonna get difficult, but there's no question in my mind. 
it's a done, done deal. I was reading in my devotions this morning with Joseph. Some of you may be familiar with his story as he was taken slave and he was put into Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife wanted to lie with him, wanted to have relationship with him. And you know that he fled temptation. He had made that decision before he got into the temptation. He'd already decided when the temptation comes, I'm going to run. I'm not going to flirt with the temptation. I'm not going to pretend that I'm more powerful than the temptation. He decided before the moment of temptation. We need to decide before the moment of temptation. We need to decide before the moment of hardship and the moment of suffering. Jesus says, I've already finished the work. I've already glorified you here on the earth. Verse five, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Glory is interwoven throughout this chapter. And Jesus is saying, the glory that I had with you before the world was, would you glorify me in this manner? We don't know a lot of what it was like for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, prior to creation, prior to Christ's taking on human flesh. But Jesus gives us a little bit of an idea here. There was glory, the glory that he shared prior to the world. Won't it be wonderful when we get to heaven to see Christ in his glorified state, to see the fellowship that he has with the Father. The crux of what Jesus is praying for is that the world would see the Father's glory as Jesus suffered upon the cross. Verse six down to verse 19, if you're still tracking with me, Jesus now prays for the current disciples, Peter, James, John, 11 total. I have manifest your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they were kept and they have kept your word. Jesus says, I've manifest, this word manifest means to make visible, to illustrate, to live out. I've manifested your name. Jesus is the express image of the Father. What would we know about God if it wasn't for the coming of God's Son? If you just took the Old Testament, what would your view of God be? If all you knew about God was creation, what would your understanding of God be? We would see his holiness, we would see his power, we would see his majesty, but we wouldn't know his grace and mercy to the depths that we do if it wasn't for Christ. He manifested the name of the Father. Several months back, but John chapter one, remember the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. Jesus came in the fullness of grace and truth. At the end of Christ's life, he can say, I manifested the father to the disciples. I love how Jesus says, you gave me these men, you called them out of the world. It was your work and their lives. And then the end of verse six is a little bit surprising. And they have kept your word. Is that how you would define the disciples as we've studied the gospels? Pretty honest record of their life, but Jesus gives them gracious commendation. I think sometimes we're harder on ourselves than Jesus is on us. And we can rejoice for that. We feel like mess ups and we've done this wrong and that wrong and we're struggling here and struggling there. And Jesus is like, Ah, they've kept my word. They've been obedient to my word. Verse seven. Now they've known that all things which you have given me are from you. So the disciples understood 
that everything that Jesus had had been received from the Father. They didn't understand everything, but they understood that Father was the source that everything that Jesus had. In verse 8, For I've given to them the words which you've given me, and they've received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. Jesus is sharing what he's received from the Father. The disciples are going to share what they receive from Jesus. We're not the source. We don't have to come up with these creative ideas to try to fix people's lives. We simply get to know Jesus in a greater way. We share the words that Jesus has shared with us. Verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Jesus, in this moment of stress, this moment of heartbreak, suffering, the cross before him, ultimate rejection, who's on his heart and his mind? The disciples. These men that have committed their lives to follow Jesus Christ. I pray for them. He says he doesn't pray for the world. Don't get the wrong idea. It's not that Jesus doesn't love the world. The world's going to be reached through the disciples, through God's love in the disciples. But it's a focus upon those that are going to do the work. This is a good way for us to pray. Who is it that is doing the work of God? Who is it that's closest to you? Make sure that you're lifting them up in prayer. I love it when God just kind of begins to take the weekend study and puts it together with the Wednesday night study. Because what do we study this weekend? A life of prayer, right? And praying for all men. And then here we are on Wednesday night, and we're looking at the prayer of Jesus Christ leading up to a week of prayer and fasting. I think God's got a message for us about prayer. So he's praying for the disciples. In verse 10, And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now let's ponder this for a second. And all mine are yours. So Jesus and the Father share. And yours are mine. What great hands to be in. Not only do the disciples belong to Jesus, but they also belong to the Father. There's something wonderful about belonging, isn't there? Belonging to Jesus, belonging to the Father, that he would claim us. Sometimes jokingly with close friends, if I meet their parents or their brother or sister, I'll say, you claim this guy? (laughs) They always go, yeah, you know, we claim him, you know. But it's great to belong, the sense of, of belonging. And what Jesus says here is these disciples, they belong to me and they belong to the Father. But then it's almost surprising, he says, I'm glorified in them. The message of Christ, the glory of the Father is going to be carried through these disciples. God's love, his grace, his forgiveness, his power is displayed in in these men. Verse 11, now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. The idea here is the disciples are left with the testimony of God. Jesus is leaving the world, but the disciples will remain in the world. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you've given me, that they may be one as we are one. This prayer that the, whole, the Holy Father would keep the disciples. The word keep means to guard, to take care of, to watch over. Jesus has been taking care of the disciples, but now he's praying that the Father would keep them. How encouraging to know that the Father's keeping us watching over us, building our very lives. Sometimes I think we view ourselves as our own project. 
Like I'm working on myself and I'm going to make myself a better person. Good luck with that one. That's probably going to blow up in your face, right? It's going to blow up in my face. There's much better news than that. It's that God who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. He's going to keep us. There's great hope for these 11 men, not in and of themselves, because in and of themselves, they are knuckleheads. Yes and amen? There's nothing amazing about these 11 guys. What's amazing is the Father's promise to keep them. We can understand that about ourselves, but also understand that about other brothers and sisters in Christ. They may be struggling. They may be going through a difficult time. God's going to keep them. Jesus is praying for the disciples that the Father would keep them. But also there's a prayer for unity, that they may be one as we are one. Now that's quite a unity. That's a little more than may they have the unity of the Denver Broncos who are playing for a Super Bowl. They have a unity, no doubt. The Broncos want to win a, a Super Bowl. But this is a unity that's unlike anything in the world. It's the unity of the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the absence of selfishness. And this is what Jesus is desiring for the disciples, that they could understand that they're better together, that they could understand that Jesus is the head, that it's not Peter going off and doing his thing and then John going and starting the first church of John and then James going off and starting the first church of James. And No, it's together, a unit together as the Trinity is one that these men would be one. In verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave me, I kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, who is this? This is Judas. Jesus said, I kept the 12 that you gave to me, except for Judas, that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now, this is a little bit mind-blowing, because the scripture did predict that Jesus would be betrayed, but also Judas had free will. So there's God's sovereignty, God's working, God knew that this would happen all along, but that didn't release Judas of his personal responsibility. So both of them are true. In verse 13, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So we note the things that Christ is praying for, that they would be kept through the power of God, that they would be one as the Father and Jesus are one. Now, Jesus says that these guys would just kind of go through life with the holy burden, walking around with, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Oh, how he loves me, you know. Jesus says, I want these guys to have my joy. So first and foremost, understand that that's God's purpose for your life. He wants you to have joy. Now that's not happiness. Happiness is based on your circumstances, based on you have a job, you don't have a job, you got a raise, you lost income, your health is good, your health is bad. That's happiness. It's circumstantial. Joy is based on your relationship with God who he is, that he never changes. Jesus went through this life with joy. In fact, Hebrews chapter one tells us he was anointed with gladness above all of his fellows because he hated wickedness and he loved righteousness. Jesus was the kind of person that you wanted to be around because he was joyful. And so we look at the source of his joy that he grants it to us. What was the key to Christ's joy? First and foremost, 
his relationship with the Father. His fellowship with the Father, obedience to the Father. He was about his Father's business. That produced joy in his life. When we get that relationship right, we start to walk into joy. Father, I want to do your business. Father, I want to be in relationship with you. Remember just a few chapters back, John 13, Kent taught that section of scripture. Jesus did something crazy. He started washing feet. Creator of the universe, God in human flesh, taking the job of the lowest servant. He said this, I've done this for an example, for you to follow this example, and you'll be blessed if you become a foot washer. You'll have my joy if you put other people's needs before your own. You know the quickest way to depression? Just focus on yourself. That's the quickest way down the slippery slope of depression. The fastest way to break through the deep valleys that we go through, focus on the Father and his business that he has for us and begin to wash feet, begin to meet needs. There's needs all over the place that nobody wants to do in every aspect of life. Just start loving people, serving people, and before you know it, we have the joy of Christ. That's something that God desires for us. Focusing on the Father, focusing on the needs of others. My joy fulfilled in themselves. Verse 14. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As the disciples had received the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden they're no longer walking in step with the world. And the world is a system, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Jesus is not of the world. He's not of this agenda. Neither are the disciples. In verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. To me, this is a ship in water. A ship in water. As Christians, we're to be like a ship that's in the water. We're in the world. We're not to be isolated We're not to never be around unbelievers. Jesus was the friend of sinners, but we're not taking on water, if you would. A ship's gonna go down in destruction if all of a sudden it gets a leak and it's it's taking on water. So we're to be in this world, but we're not to be of this world. And some believers have made a mistake in this. I don't believe that it's God's intent for us to go live in a monastery and not talk to anybody. It's... Nice as that may be sometimes, I don't think that that's God's will for our lives. There's seasons of that, to be alone, to pray, to get recharged, but Jesus was around people. He loved people. And we're to be around people. We're to love people. Hopefully we're around some people that are messed up, some sinners that don't know Christ as as their Savior, not compromising, not walking along this worldly agenda, and we have to be careful. We have to make sure that we're not compromising, but at the same time, we can't just create this Christian enclave that all we do is hang around Christians. Sometimes if you've walked with the Lord for a while, you might have to be intentional about going out of your way to be around unbelievers. Man, praise the Lord, God surrounded me with a bunch of believers, but I need to go make some friends with some people that don't know Christ as their Savior. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Jesus' prayer is keep them from the evil one. When we study Christ's prayers, this is a theme. The Lord's prayer, part of the Lord's prayer is protection from the evil one. And he prays the same thing here, that the disciples would be protected from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
Can you say that? Can I say that this evening? Have we made that decision of saying, this world's not my home, it's temporary, but also I'm not making my decisions based on the lust of my flesh and the lust of my eyes and the pride of life. What's the pride of life? It's what does everybody think about me? What does this do for my ego? But I begin to make my decisions based upon God's world. I'm not of this world. Verse 17, sanctify them by your truth that your word, your word is truth. Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. Sanctification is set apart for a specific pleasure and use. Let me say that again. Sanctification is set apart for a specific pleasure and use. We're to be sanctified for God's use, sanctified for his pleasure. We operate in sanctification all the time in our homes. My toothbrush is set apart for a specific use, isn't it? And it's no good if that toothbrush is being used to scrub the toilet and then it's also being used to brush my teeth. That's a Wednesday blessing for you. Thanks for coming to Wednesday night. There's a visual image for you. It gets all messed up, doesn't it? Once you start to do that. In our home, my wife's grandmother has passed on some china and, you know, some dishes and those kind of things. And they're sanctified. They're set apart for specific use. And we get them out for nice meals and holidays and those kind of things. And it just isn't appropriate if I'm sitting with my feet up watching TV, eating my granola with some milk in there, and then just happen to break one of these dishes. That wouldn't be good for me, right? Wouldn't be wise to, to do that. And in the same way, there's some sanctified tools out in the garage that are fairly important. I, I prefer them over fine china, but they have their purpose, don't they? And I, I don't really want those to just be played with like anything else uh, around the house. We all have stuff in our homes or apartments that are sanctified, that are set apart. We're bought with Christ's blood. We couldn't be more sanctified. We couldn't be more set apart. There's a purity that's to be in a life of a believer where our life is to look different from those that don't know Christ as their savior. Our language should be different. Our decisions with sexuality should be different. They should be God-honoring. How we use money should be different. It should be set apart from the world. We should have a different priority with money than those that don't know Christ as their Savior. But church, there's good news here. You don't sanctify yourself. You don't make yourself more holy. You don't make yourself more like Christ. What's the agent that sanctifies you? It's the truth of God's word. Isn't that encouraging? God's truth will sanctify you. God's word is powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It doesn't return void. Sink yourself into the word of God. Allow God's word to get inside of you and you'll find that the word of God will begin to set you apart. The word of God will begin to transform you. We all struggle with sin, don't we? And the more we focus on sin, it seems like it can be a downward spiral. Focus on Jesus. Focus on his sacrifice, his glory. Spend time in his word. Meditate upon his word. Ask for his strength, his help through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the truth of God's word and submitting to it that sanctifies us and set us apart. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, also I have sent them into the world. Notice the order. The sanctification came before the sending. We're set apart for service. 
if we want God to send us into this world to have impact for things that really matter, then we have to get serious about sanctification. We have to get serious about allowing God's word to set us apart. As we're set apart, then we're sent into the world. Now, this sounds exciting for the disciples. Hey, you guys are sent in the world just as I was sent into the world. But what did this involve for Jesus? A whole lot of suffering and leaving a lot of comfort behind. And the disciples had to do this as well. As Christ touched their heart and life, all of a sudden their comfort wasn't the most important thing to them. In verse 19, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. This really stood out to me this morning because Jesus, before leading the disciples in sanctification, he first set himself apart. Not that Jesus was ever sinful, but he modeled something. I think a lot of times if we want to see those around us walk a godly life, we've got to first walk a godly life. Let me read this to you again. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by truth. So the sanctification has to start in me if I want that to be infectious in the lives of others. Verse 20 to verse 26, Jesus now prays for future disciples. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus knows the power of the gospel. The disciples are going to go out and speak the word of God. They're going to go out and speak the gospel. There's going to be those who believe, and Jesus prays for those. We could begin to pray for people that haven't even come into the kingdom yet, because we know believers are going to continue to share the gospel. Missionaries are going to continue to go out and speak the word of God, whether it's locally or internationally. People are going to come to Christ. Here's a mind-blowing concept. If God continues to tarry, pray for grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, four generations, five generations, that God would work in their life. Jesus is praying way down in the future here for those who will believe. This is his prayer. It includes us. Jesus is praying for us at this point in verse 21. That they may be one as you, the Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus fulfilled this prayer. He accomplished this prayer. We are one. We don't need to have rallies or big get-togethers to try to prove that we're one. This happened at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The moment that someone receives Christ as their Savior, they're one. We're one in the body of Christ. Cartiers, we don't have family gatherings together and have big rallies to try to convince each other that we're Cartiers. We already know that we're Cartiers, so we just enjoy relationship. We don't want to do anything to compromise that unity, but a lot of times believers are like trying to accomplish this somehow. It's already been accomplished. That's what the Bible teaches. Ephesians tells us there's one baptism, there's one faith, there's one Savior, Jesus Christ. We have that in common if you know Christ as your Savior. The importance is walking in that walking in the unity that God has given us, remembering that we're not solo in this, that we are part of the body of Christ. If one part of the body of Christ hurts, then we all hurt and being complementary to one another inside of this church fellowship, but also inside of the body of Christ as a whole. We'd be naive, foolish, possibly even sinful if we didn't love the rest of the body of Christ in Colorado Springs, amen? 
There's wonderful churches here in Colorado Springs that are doing great work and we're partnering together. We're all in this together. And Jesus prays for this unity that he accomplished that we're now to walk in. In verse 22, and the glory which you gave me, I've given them that they may be one just as we are one. Did you catch that? The glory that was given to Jesus is given now to the church, to believers. It seems like at a point in our lives, we come to hopefully the conclusion that I'm into the church, I'm into believers because Jesus is into his church. The church is not perfect, but the church is the body of Christ. Why would I not want to hang out where God has put his glory? You read it for yourself right there. He has put his glory upon his church. It's a very mature attitude to begin to love the church of God. Anybody can just point out all of the flaws in the church. And I'm not just speaking about our church, but there's a lot of church bashers out there, isn't there? A lot of church haters that all they see is all the deficiencies in the body of Christ. But wait a second, if it's good enough for Christ, it's good enough for me. And I'm not saying we don't stand up for truth, but we begin to love what God loves and God loves his church. I don't know how I would feel if someone was always bashing on my wife, Amber. We probably wouldn't get along very well. And I'd be like, hey, you know what? I could kind of handle it for the first five minutes, but I'm a fallen sinner. It's probably a good time for you to stop going off on my wife, right? (laughs) I realize my wife's not perfect and I'm not perfect, but that's just, just not appropriate. And I wonder how many times that Jesus is like, okay, I get it, enough already. You're talking about my bride. I died for my bride. I'm gonna purify my bride. I'm committed to my bride. When are you gonna commit to the bride? When are you gonna commit to what God has put his glory upon? It's a wonderful truth there in verse 22. Verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Let's consider this. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in one. This is complete. It's not that we're perfect in the sense of how God is perfect, but we're complete in one. And that's the body of Christ. If it wasn't for all the different aspects of the body of Christ, we wouldn't be complete. That the world would know that you've sent me. So our unity, our love for one another, it's for one sole purpose, that the world may believe in Jesus Christ. Hopefully the world can look at the way we treat each other and they can see something different and they could long for Jesus Christ. And don't miss this in the end of verse 23, and have loved them as you have loved me. Wow, that's incredible. We all think of how the father loves Jesus and what Jesus is praying here and saying is that disciples, believers would know and understand that the Father loves them the same way that he loves Jesus Christ. God loves you the same way that he loves his own son. When he says, you're my son and you're my daughter, he has the same love towards you that he had towards Jesus Christ. That's goodness and that's grace. That's the work of God's grace in our lives. If we could just believe that, if we could really understand that God loves us in that way, that he loves us the same way that he loves Jesus Christ. In verse 24, it says, 
Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Jesus longs for us to be with him in eternity with the glory of the Father. Psalms 116 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. Death is difficult for us when God takes a loved one home to be with him, but we've got to understand it's a wonderful thing from God's perspective. It's like, oh, you get to come and be with me and be with the Father. Jesus desires that we would be with Christ. And maybe, maybe hold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. As we step into eternal life, we get to see the glory of the Father. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. We have to understand the world doesn't know the Father. Verse 26, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it. I like this. Jesus has declared the character and the nature of the Father, but he'll continue to declare it. He'll continue to share it. As we've studied over the last few weeks of John 14 through 17, the Spirit testifies of who? Jesus. And Jesus declares who? The Father. So we have this revelation of the Trinity being given to us. That the love which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. The love which the Father has for Jesus would be inside of us and that Christ would be inside of us. This is the Christian life. It's not try harder. It's not do better. It's the love of the Father is in you. So then as we begin to have relationship with others, it's God's love flowing through our lives. It's not pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but Jesus Christ lives in you, the hope of glory. So let's consider what this prayer reveals to us about God. It's the glory of the Father revealed at the cross. The glory of the Father revealed at the cross. We see that God loves us. His love is demonstrated for us. His goodness is demonstrated for us at the cross. Maybe tonight is a night of suffering. It's a night of difficulty. It's a night of question. It's a Job type of moment. Look at the cross and behold the goodness and the glory of God. Maybe you're wrestling with, can God love me and forgive me and provide salvation? Absolutely. Look at the glory of the cross. Throughout this prayer, one thing stands out to me, and it's, oh, how he loves us. It's, oh, how he loves us. You've missed it if you've heard this prayer and only taken a model for prayer. If you've listened to these things and then you've gone, I've got to pray like Jesus. You're never going to pray like Jesus. <laughs> and that's a good secondary application of this. I found myself praying for things that I read and studied here in John 17. But that's not ultimately the point of John 17. The point of John 17 is the glory of God and beholding the glory of God. And what's behind the glory of God? What's the glory of God in essence? That he would love sinners. That he would love sinners enough to send his son. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, may we come to know in a personal way, wow, Jesus loves me, or excuse me, the Father loves me the same way that he loves Jesus. If we could grasp that one simple truth and make this one application, I'm gonna make the obsession of my life to worship Jesus, to know him, to walk with him, to understand him in a greater way. Let's stand and pray together.